I don't know how aware you are of what times we lived through here 40 years ago. Out of which this piece was made. We learned a great cost through those years, the value of the balance of things. Every arrow that flies feels the pull of the earth. But we must aim upwards. We need to get you in the air. It sounds extra good when we're remote. You know what I mean? Where we can't synchronize yeah. with one another. That's oh, it's great. Here's the here's the funny thing. It's like you got two amazing film soundtracks, and you're probably gonna open this pod with that stupid <laughs> Disturbia song. I mean, yeah. I am a little unclear why the original movie and by extension the remake are actually named Suspiria. I don't really know what Suspiria means. Well, I think I think I understand why the 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 remake is called Suspiria. Right. Because they go out of their way to use Suspirium. Yeah, Suspiriorum, right? Suspir- Sus- or Suspiriorum. Yeah, 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 yeah. Suspiria means size. Like size is in big or size is in like Ah, like sighing, like spiritual sighs and stuff like that. You know, like ghosts. No, that and whatnot, does not though. clear anything up, Adam. What the fuck are you talking about? It's a about? supernatural thought, I guess. I don't know. I kind of get why it would relate to like witches or magic or shit. Like moaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that clears things up. <laughs> so I can make a horror movie and call it Gasp. <laughs> that's actually a pretty good name for Fine. a horror movie gasp that's not yeah, sure. bad with the sequel egad <laughs> egad kind of sucks but gasp is pretty good that's the name of jordan peele's next horror movie yeah, that's how, i was gonna say that's like a jordan peele title jalai jalo jalai coming to an end here in the first week of august <laughs> yeah jalo jalai our month-long exploration of italian Horror cinema ends with a side-by-side comparison of the 1977 film Suspiria and the 2018 film Suspiria. We haven't done one of these in a minute. No, we haven't done a done a side-by-side. Have we ever done this? A remake? Well, we did the Space Jam movies, although that wasn't a remake. That was a sequel of the original Space Jam. This is kind of something I've always wanted to do. I've brought up it'd be fun to compare, you know, things like some of the Body Snatcher remakes or maybe RoboCop and the controversy around that one. We did do Mother and Ma. We sure did. We did that. We also did Room and The Room. We also did Room and The Room. (laughs) We did Spectre and Octopussy side by side. Nice comparison there. Back in the day. Yeah, we used to do that quite a bit. We would pair movies a lot and kind of compare them. But yeah, Suspiria and Suspiria, you have been dangling this movie in front of me, Adam, for five years now. I have? Oh, yeah. 2018, you named this the number one movie of the year. Still is my favorite movie of that year. 
you have been threatening to assign this to me on various podcasts over the years, and for some reason, things never came together. And now on Jalai, we're going to talk about this non-Jalo movie from 2018. I was going to say, this is for <laughs> Jalai, where we're talking about Italian Jalo films. This could not be less Jalo. It is uh, based in Germany, featuring an American with not a single knife, not a single mystery. The plot is very upfront and clear about what it is. There is no glove. Uh, and uh, 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 I would say there's not really a glove. Dakota Johnson puts on some black gloves. Yeah, whatever. Who cares? And uh, witchcraft is not a Jalo thing, I don't believe. Not really. <laughs> no. Yeah, the remake is aggressively not Jalo. It's very, very, very much going out of its way to not be Jalo. And the original... You know, there's a lot of debate on whether or not it should be considered Jalo, but it still vibes a lot like a Jalo, which is important. The vibes are there. The vibes are there, and it keeps a lot of the tropes intact. Like, there is still a central mystery, even if the mystery isn't resolved in the way that a lot of the other Jalos, like Argento's Deep Red, kind of resolve themselves. There is still a, you know, revelation of who killed the person that was killed at the beginning of the movie. So it is the same structure. I guess, but... I was putting on finally this deep into Jalai. I had my my Jalo hat ready, oh. and I said, "All right, I'm going to put on my Jalo hat, and we're going to solve this mystery." Was it a yellow hat? <laughs> it was. Okay, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Very. No, yellow. but this was not the movie to do that because the whole time I'm going, "Ah, her best friend. Clearly, she's the killer," and it's just not <laughs> like it's just, it's it's just exactly what the movie tells you from the start. Uh, this person, they're uh, mean and old looking and they're probably the killer. And I'm like, no, it couldn't be. Sure. And of course they are. It's very on the nose. Like, guys, I, I, to be to be honest, because <laughs> when I heard we were going to be doing this, I was like, uh, <laughs> eh, OK, I mean, I think it's a fascinating conversation just comparing these two. But like, I thought we would just call it a day at the 1977 movie i'm like all right it's sort of kind of not really a giallo but like it, it fits well enough and then when nico's like no 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 no, we're doing the remake i'm like what <laughs> which i think this was your idea i don't know why you're pinning this on me i'm pretty sure you're the one that brought up doing the new suspiria uh maybe as a joke <laughs> but the thought of like actually talking about the remake as a giallo and then trying to compare it to hard. the original Jesus Christ, they're they're just they're completely different movies. It's it's I've always found it interesting, like how far out of its way the, the remake goes to differentiate itself from the original. Yet it is interesting to me how close it stays to like the general beats of that original as well. So in my opinion, like the Argento film, like kind of fits inside that movie. And then Luca Guadagnino just builds upon that and goes in a radically different direction and makes his own artistic statement with that movie. And I have some pretty bold feelings on both movies. <laughs> right. And I know you do. And I've heard a couple of them, you know, as a sneak preview off pod. And I think you're insane. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, the first one you're right. I think if you compare it to Deep Red, if you compare it to Happy Birthday to Me, if you compare it to Murder Rock, yes, this seems like an unconventional Jalo film, and definitely the the uh, the the one of these things is not like the others installment of our series. But when you compare it to the remake, I mean, it looks like the most traditional paint by numbers thing you've ever seen. 
You know what I mean? So it's all really relative here. I will say I was missing some of the Jalo elements in the new one. Yeah. And I was kind of wishing that Guadagnino, who is a guy that I've struggled with in the past, kind of adhered more to Argento's rubric. I, I I am of the opinion you don't even bother. Like I, he makes to me the only direction you can go. I mean, it didn't literally need to be what he did, but I I can't even fucking imagine a movie nowadays that's directly ripping off the aesthetic and the voice of an Argento Giallo. Like I don't want that in 2018, dude. It's kind of what I wish all remakes were. Just take the same story and just do your own fun thing with it. And don't worry about how close it is to that original. You know, it just needs to have like, I don't know, the dressing of the story, which it does. But well, I think the starting out point, right? Like use the same kind of framework to start and then let your creativity wander from there. There's no point in remaking a movie <laughs> like there's, it's, it's pointless. The movie exists. You don't need to remake it. Argento actually said that himself. He's like, you can remake it, in which case it's just a copy Right. Right. Or you can go in your own direction, in which case, why call it Suspiria? And that's kind of where I'm landing is like, why even do this at all? That, yeah, that that's the paradox of remakes. And I guess like we can litigate that on its own and it's not really germane to what we're doing. But yeah, I, I, I take your point. Yeah, I don't know, guys. I think it is so drastically its own movie. It's hard to for me to even call it a remake, to be perfectly honest with you. It deeply, deeply feels like Luca just had like a great affinity for that movie and just like he loved that story, just wanted to tell his own version of that story. So there's a, you know, a pure artistic quality to it. It's like, no, 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 this story just resonates with me and I want to, you know, tell it the way only I know how. It, it feels the way the movie originally made him feel. If that makes any sense. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, it's that level of like weird and disturbing and under your skin in a very specific vibey way that's hard to articulate. Oh, no. See, I I don't know. I don't agree with that. I think what he literally did was extracted some of the ideas from that original movie and kind of literalized them in a way that Argento didn't really. You know, this this movie is a review of the original. It's almost like we're going to take all of this stuff about motherhood and fascism and feminism and all this stuff, right? And we're going to pull it out and we're going to literalize it more and pump the violence up a little bit more and create something that's almost like ruminating on the original. I mean, this movie owes a lot more to possession than it does even Suspiria, which is a very weird, very, very intense movie, you know, about a crumbling relationship set with the backdrop of the Berlin wall. Interestingly enough, looks a lot like this movie moves a lot like this movie and goes places in a way that the 2018 one certainly does. I I, mean, I did find it kind of interesting though. You mentioned the time periods, right? Like both movies are set in the year 1977, although one movie was shot in present day and the other is a period piece. And that's, just a consequence of obviously when the movies were made and it's kind of interesting that the 77 one feels more detached from time than the period piece does because of the way that history kind of works Mm -hmm. where it's hard to really put your finger on what's happening in a zeitgeist in real time even if you're like on the ground and making a movie in a particular context Like, it's sometimes hard to see the matrix that you're existing in, you know, until many years later when you can identify, oh, this is what was happening 
at the Berlin Wall in the autumn of 1977, right? This is what's going to stick with us for 30 years. This is the way that the German history books are going to be written. So it, it is kind of interesting that like the 2018 movie is more about the year 1977 than the 1977 version is. <laughs> Stylistically speaking, I think they're both fucking pushing the envelope in their own way in their own mm-hmm. era. You know? Oh, yeah. I, I almost feel like the 77 movie is more radical in 77, although it's coming after The Exorcist, than this one is in 2018. Yeah, we're going to disagree a lot on here because... I mean, that doesn't hold true if you look at the reaction to the movie, though, because this is a hyper polarizing movie. It's one of the most polarizing films in the past, like, 20 years. Yes. And it's interesting because it's a movie that does not elicit mild reactions out of you. You're you're not going to have an in, in the middle feeling towards it. It's either going to be I love it or I really fucking hate it. Th- this one actually bombed at the box office. It was an Amazon oh, yeah. production. Amazon <laughs> and Jeff Bezos himself ponied up $20 million to make this thing and only grow $7.9 million at the box office. And I'm not sure what the streaming numbers on it are like. But that is in stark opposition to how the original movie did in theaters. It's actually Argento's highest grossing movie stateside, Mm -hmm. the original Suspiria. So one was actually embraced by audiences in the way that the second one wasn't. Uh, Listen, I respect a movie that fucking goes for it and gets people talking. And uh, I guess we can get more into it as we, as we talk about each movie specifically, but Guadagnino continues to be kind of an enigma for me. I can't really fucking sink my teeth into what this guy's getting at. And I I understand why you love it. Like, I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, of course Adam loves it for X, Y, Z reasons. I don't know. It's just kind of a a taste thing, I think. But there is a... There's an objectiveness and a remove to the second one Mm -hmm. that I think is intentional, but is the complete opposite approach of what Argento took in the original one, which is very subjective and very in the main character's point of view. And I just think, like, as a horror movie... I gravitated towards that version of the story where I'm in a person's point of view and getting scared along with the person. You were scared by the original. I was. I was actually more scared by the original than I was this one, as crazy as it is to to say. But I was like grossed out by this one. I don't know. I was watching it being like, this is disgusting. Why am I watching this? I, I wouldn't call it scared. Mm. You know, I would call it maybe disturbed or horrified, but I wouldn't say scared. Whereas the original one definitely unnerved me. Um, well, I don't know. I think the remake gives a, I mean, it, it obviously gets to this effect in a different way, but it has that similar, just I am weirded out and uncomfortable in the same way like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sometimes gets to me. I don't really consider that movie scary per se, but it is a horrifying sit through with that one. Yeah, but that that shit is like edgy and like the filmmaking itself, like the way that Toby Hooper shoots that thing, it's like messy and dirty and it feels like the film has like scratches on it. You can feel the grit, whereas this one is just like, it's really well choreographed and really well shot, but uh, I don't know. I, for the time, for I mean, you don't see a movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre anymore and you probably never will. I did feel like, though, with the 2018 one is that it's actually a more rough around the edges movie than the 1977 one. Really? Yeah. I I couldn't. Yeah, I'm with Nick. (laughs) Maybe it's just the modern cameras and stuff, but like it just feels really polished. It's polished. Yeah. It has that elevated horror sheen that we're used to seeing in like Ari Aster films and Robert Eggers films and 
the approach doesn't from like a story standpoint, like just from like a, a standpoint of like Guadagnino's style, but like the technical elements, I'm like, yeah, that like zoom doesn't land quite right. It's a little wobbly. The effects aren't very good. Like the it's it's very gross and grimy and there's a shoddiness to to elements that reminds me of 70s films, to be honest with you. Like, there are instances that remind me of, like, The Conversation or something. Oh, God, we watched a different movie. <laughs> There's not, like, a succinctness to the way things fall. Like, even sometimes, like, th- people are shot, like, out of frame weirdly. It's not like a Fincher film at all, where it's like everything's put on like a mechanical dolly and it's just everything is punched in exactly where it needs to be. There is a certain looseness that Guadagnino shoots a lot of his stuff at. And there's a (laughs) there are a lot of choices in the editing, shall we say, some of which I think are absolutely marvelous. And then others that I'm just like, that was a what? Why did you cut to that thing right there? I didn't hate the 2018 version. I'm not trying to be a total. It's just this is the nature of podcasting, where if you say one thing, I have to say the opposite. Well, do you want me to really start like shocking people? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Let's rattle off some takes and then we'll get into the 77 version first. Well, for starters, I like the 2018 one more than the 77 movie. Yeah, we know. We thought was coming. Yes. Yeah, it's I like it a lot more and I like it more in just about every way imaginable. Not to say I don't like the 77 one because I actually think it's quite good. Um because because the order which I saw it, I saw the original, then I saw the 2018 one, and then I went back to watch the 77 one. I'm like, yeah, fuck, I wish it was doing what the 2018 movie did. That's crazy. But no, but that viewing order, I think, is interesting, though, because I did it in the chronological order, not really knowing what the plot was, generally knowing that it was a movie about witches and the supernatural, but not really knowing much more than that. And, you know, the first one is reliant in the way that all of these giallos are, on the mystery of not knowing where it goes. Mm-hmm. Whereas the 2018 version front loads all that information and just presents it to you in kind of an objective way. So, you know, going back, it's going to affect your viewing of it a little bit, I think. But I think the same is true of the inverse. You know what I mean? Like if I know where the movie is going coming into the 2018 version, I am let down by the lack of a mystery. That's, I think, a, a big part of it i mean it's a lot maybe a lot of this is just kind of expectations it's like nearly impossible to find your footing in the remake it, especially if you like that original it's very very hard to go in with any sort of expectations that it's going to be beholden to that movie and then to get what you get So uh, let's start with the 77 version. Obviously, Dario Argento directs. This is the second Argento movie we have done on the pod this month. The movie stars Jessica Harper, who actually returns for the 2018 Suspiria. She plays the psychiatrist's wife that dies in the concentration camp. 
she actually looked a lot like Dakota Johnson in 1977. And I thought that was, or I guess Dakota Johnson looks a lot like her. I thought it was interesting that they kind of cast a similar kind of archetype for both movies. Even though they're playing, I think, like radically different characters, although they have the same name. Well, they are radically different characters in just about every way. Girl goes to Dance Academy in Germany. People start dying. What's going on here? Turns out the Academy is run by a bunch of vitches. Vitches. That's how you say it in German. That's right. The vitches. The vitches. I I think I disagree with you strongly, Nico, on the fact that the first one relies on a mystery because there is no mystery. There's the illusion of mystery. Sure. That leads you astray from the very straight and narrow plot. That's fair. Although there is a reveal, even though it's not like this is the identity of the killer. You know, it was Professor Plum in the library with a wrench. Well, it has like the buildup and a setup like a reveal, but like we already know right. the person's there. Yeah. So it's like, uh, okay. Yeah. It's, it's odd. Now, weirdly, it's not the same, like the reveal of your, I'm assuming you're talking about mother Marcos. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's, it's not at all. Like I think about the reveal of mother Marcos in the remake and that's a fucking reveal. Now, again, we know she's there, but just the sight of Mother Marcos It's the worst is, part of the movie for me, to be honest with you. It's its own thing. When yeah, fucking but- Jabba the Hutt shows up in the second movie. <laughs> no, you know what I love? I love fucking wallpaper. And Argento knows how to wallpaper a fucking room, dude. The blue wallpaper in, like, the atrium of the Academy? Sick! Looks like blue velvet. Rules! Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Also, like, the curtains... That hang in the witch's lair. That that reminded me a lot of like Lynch's Blue Velvet. Listen, this is the most shallow fucking criticism I guess I can I can levy at either movie. But like at least the 77 version had a lot of pretty colors. And, you know, obviously Guadagnino purposely went in a colder, more wintry direction. I think he like eschewed primary colors at every turn if he had any say in the matter. There was very little like blood in that movie until the very end. And even then it was black as opposed to the stark, bright red of the 77 film. Right. Uh, Yeah. Give me that version of this movie. Give me the one with the pretty colors in it. Stylistic. Yeah, it was very stylistic, the 77 version. But on a plot level for both of these movies, I just could not give less of a fuck. Well, I think you can come at it from the angle that one is is way too simplistic and the other is way too complicated. And I think both are kind of true. I like the transportive nature of both movies. I'm going to a very different place with both movies, but I'm going to a place nonetheless. Like one feels like feels like a dream that reveals itself to be a nightmare. And I really, really love that about the movie. And then the other one is transporting me to like the apocalypse, which is, you know, I'm okay with an apocalyptic feeling movie at times. I mean, I don't think anybody comes to Argento movies for like an Agatha Christie mystery. I think like you come for the style, right? And this is definitely the full culmination of Argento's style. This is like the purest distillation of like what he's trying to do with the technology of cinema. Yeah, the music, musical cues, the the scenes where you have the blue rooms, the green rooms, the red rooms. I mean... The Goblin score in this one... We were heaping praise on the 75 Deep Red Goblin score. This one is way more percussive, way more like actually intense and smothering 
they're both great. The first one is great because almost it, it it feels like it's from another movie. It's like this jazzy kind of thing. There's a dissonant charm to that one. Yeah. Whereas like this one is like you are entering hell. Bum 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 bum. Two completely different things. Maybe I'm more likely to listen to the uh, the deep red goblin score on its own, but this is definitely the version that enhances the movie the most for me. Yeah, I think cinematically too, this one fits into the movie in a much more naturalistic way than the Deep Red. Not to say there's anything wrong with the Deep Red score, but I can't separate the this score from Suspiria, and I don't think I ever will. I think most people would probably agree if they, you know, when they watch the movie. Yeah, I mean Tom York. We're gonna have a long conversation about Tom York in a little bit. Although he does kind of mimic the '77 score in a way, because he actually plays drums on I think all of those tracks. And the drums are definitely the primary instrument there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does kind of feel disconnected. And when, like, the symphony of violence that is the last 20 minutes of that movie begins and fucking <laughs> Radiohead music starts playing, Unmade essentially. starts playing, yeah. That's- yeah, it's like, okay, this, this is a bit of a cognitive dissonance in the best way possible, but it's just like I am watching, like, a snuff film. To like some, you know, pretty nice alt rock, you know. <laughs> Nico, Nico struggles a lot with the combination of weird sex and violence and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. I love it. <laughs> Generally, I don't like disemboweling in the bedroom. You know, don't knock until you try it. You know, I just like to keep it clean. I feel like the scary moments of the '77 film, like kind of lose steam as the film goes on though like the grubs oh yeah the maggots yeah absolutely the maggots everywhere yeah oh yeah it's like absolutely uncomfortable disgusting the bat is kind of hilarious that was kind of weird when it's like suddenly it's a vampire movie and now the witches are using bats to take out their victims yeah little hilarious um when uh when her friend falls in a room full of wire that was the funniest fucking thing of all time. (laughs) That was so funny. Like she's just running through a haunted house and suddenly like Looney Tunes style. Like that's like something the Roadrunner would do to Wile E. Coyote. They would just leave like a fucking tub of barbed wire in the middle of the room. (laughs) Like that shit is hilarious. Yeah. But it's like she's trapped inside of a giant uh, tangled spring. There's a little bit of Sam Raimi in there. Actually, the original murder scene where the girl is like on the top of this apartment building and the fist kind of uh, flies in through the window and and sort of the way that the camera moves, it's almost like the point of view of the killer, even though the killer doesn't really exist. It seems like it's just like a, an arm that's acting on its own accord. Well, I always figured there's, there's that shot in the original evil dead where the camera's flying towards the window and it breaks the window that I, I imagine he must've gotten from this. Yeah, there's that kind of like Looney Tunes energy to it, you know, where it's disturbing, but there is kind of like a comedic bend to it. Um, one of the things I love, and the movie sets the tone early, obviously with the score, but the way that it's employed in the airport, mm. which is the first scene in the movie, and, you know, in any other movie and uh, directed by any other person, this would kind of be like rote table setting that is just sort of connective tissue like oh really we're showing her land at the berlin airport or whatever and it's not that like the way that the doors 
open and close and the way Argento shoots it, the, the sliding doors to let mm. her out of the airport into the rainy streets. He hits that with purpose. And it's like everything around her is scary. And that was, you know, one of the things that uh, definitely influenced Guan Nino in the 2018 version. Like there, there is terror everywhere, right? There's creaking and weird sounds. And there's just like a vibe in the room that the people can't really put their finger on. And like to me, it's done so brilliantly in the 77 version. I don't think it ever could have been topped. But the way that just like a sliding glass door scares this person. And the way that the the goblin theme comes in and out when the doors open and shut, even like the most innocuous things are terrifying. That one's like she's crossing over, though. Yes, right. She's about to enter some kind of mystical land that she doesn't fully understand. And Argento also intended for this to be a fairy tale. Mm. Yeah, obviously it's not explicitly a fairy tale, but it's definitely heavily inspired by them. Snow White was a big reference point that he gave to a cinematographer when talking about the color palette of the movie. And that's definitely like a fairy tale. Like Alice is going through the looking glass. Dorothy is going to Oz, right? It's this turn back now. Don't come in here or whatever. Like terror awaits you on the other side of those sliding doors. Mm-hmm. And I, I almost wish that the Guananino version had more time for moments like that because that's the stuff that actually sticks with me. In the way that, like, the hyperviolence doesn't really, you know? I mean, like, I can describe to you what happens, but, like, in, in terms of the stuff that really sends shivers down my spine, I don't know if, like, the disemboweling hits me as much as the sliding doors hit me. And I know that's weird to say, but, like, that's just my my storytelling preferences, I guess. Uh, nothing's as scary as the, the hooks. Nothing's as scary as the Olga scene, dude. I am so desensitized to gore at this point. I think we got to draw the line between scary and horrifying, I think. Yeah. You know, I think we have to like differentiate that. Like the difference between gruesome and horrifying and disturbing and like scared and unnerved, right? The reality is like, I can tell you on my top five list of movies that gave me the most like anxiety, like uncut gems is on that list. Oh yeah. Like, not you know what i mean like not most horror movies like mother is probably the top of that list yeah oh yeah although mother is kind of going for the same thing that the 2018 suspiria is going for but no but it does it better (laughs) even though i don't like mother i don't like mother (laughs) that's a bad that's not that is not no 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 stirring the fucking pot here (laughs) i've never been more uncomfortable and borderline about to have a panic attack than watching that movie genuinely like physical response yeah i mean there's a there's a difference and i'm not calling like the 2018 movie torture porn or anything it's not like saw or final destination or something no but I it's it's definitely playing the same notes at times, although there are a lot more ideas, capital I ideas shoved in there. And that's just a vibe that it doesn't really sit well with me. But here we are again criticizing the 2018 version when we should be talking about the 77 version. So let's do that. No, I, I love it, too. It's just we're, this is my problem. We're talking about it next to. A more interesting movie. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so uh, Jessica Harper is playing this character, Susie. She arrives in Germany at this academy, this dance academy. Everyone is kind of cold to her when she first arrives. Like, all the other students are asking her for money. 
You know, everybody's obsessed with like, I need this month's rent or whatever. I'm going to take this off of your tab. Like everybody's always obsessed with cash. You want to buy these shoes from me. Very cold. Also like stark opposition to what's happening in the new movie where like the environment is very like cold and wintry and removed. But like Tilda Swinton's character and all of her classmates are actually quite kind to Susie when she shows up at the school. I thought that was interesting. Like the dissonance there. Uh, there's this girl, Patricia, who is spotted running out of the academy the night that Susie arrives. She is talking to someone on the other side of the door, although Susie does not know who that person is. And she sees Patricia mouth a few words, and she looks very distressed. And this is such a great Argentoism. You know, we were just talking about this with Deep Red. What was that thing I saw in the picture frame? You know, what was that (laughs) detail that I missed? I know it's in there somewhere. I have to remember it. I have to remember it. She just hears the words secret and irises. She doesn't hear anything else. And she thinks nothing of it until she is forced to think something of it. And eventually she uncovers exactly what she was saying to the unnamed person behind the door. But doesn't that reveal feel so much less cool than when he busts open the wall? Okay. You know what I mean? Like, when it finally came up, they're like, Iris's turn the blue one. (laughs) I was just like, who gives a fuck? Like, I didn't care. I forgot about the fucking flowers. Like, who gives a shit? It's also like she's talking about the irises and literally the the frame. She is surrounded by them. So you can't help but look at like, uh, well, it has to do something with whatever's in this room. I can see shit that you're talking about on the wall over there. Yeah, I guess it's not as cool as like it was actually a face in a mirror. I guess that is a right. Yeah, sure. And and by that point where the big irises reveal was there, I was still wondering why did that dog eat his fucking blind owner? Like, why did that happen? Because the witch is like brainwashed him. yeah but why they they needed to shut him up they needed to make sure that he didn't narc about their academy right that's a great scene though yeah it is a great scene the motivation of the witches in the first one is definitely less concrete <laughs> than in the second one you know <laughs> well, most that's how i feel about the whole movie like i said I, on a story level i'm not that interested in the original it's just it doesn't well it's also like if you're a witch why would you open a dance studio? I feel like I can answer well, that question in the second movie. the remake answers this question. Right. I, I feel like I can answer that question in the second movie. I can't answer that question in the original. Like, I don't get it. It's insane. I mean, yeah, okay. I guess he doesn't really unpack all of that stuff, but they're just witches and they do evil things. You know, hubble, double, boil in trouble, you know? It's just a, it's just a framing. It's just dressing. I did a lot of Shakespeare in college. If you could tell, you know, I can tell because you got all the lines wrong. That's right. (laughs) You said, you said Hubble, like it's a telescope. (laughs) Not the one where he holds the skull, right? That's that scene. Oh, Um, that midsummer night's dream with the skull. (laughs) So, um, yeah, no, they just, uh, they use potions and they curse people and then they commit murder sometimes and they just do yeah. witch things. You're like, yeah, we better kill that girl so they don't know that we're witches, you know? <laughs> so we can keep Basically. being witches. Yeah, see. <laughs> Which, all right. I mean, like, I just go with it. Like, I don't give a shit, you know? Like, I don't want to know what witches are doing because when I found out what they were doing, it's like, oh, that's gross. I'm going to close that door. 
I'm the fucking per, the psychiatrist that just wants to forget all that shit. You know what I mean? I don't want to know what's going on in there. <laughs> like they're witches, whatever. They do witch things. They're being witchy. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Uh, <laughs> so this, this one girl learns that they're witches. And so she's about a rat. And so they take her out in a pretty good scene where her head gets like smushed through a, a glass window pane. They're also like, there's like a, a stabbing of a heart. Oh yeah. That's they right. Stab like through her chest cavity and you see like a close up of the heart getting stabbed. Yeah. This scene is truly shocking. But again, this is all front loaded. The first 20 minutes of the movie are literally 10 times scarier than the rest of the film. I think. The only other part that like really got under my skin and, and, and scared me was when uh, Susie was finally going into the, the rooms where the witches are talking and she discovers uh, Helena Marcos. And then you get Sarah with the knife and the crazy face like that. Sarah with the knife. Zombie Sarah is fucking sick. That's scary. Yeah, yeah. that's yes. that's good stuff. Again, like compare that to this is just going to be a preference thing for me. I like my horror a little rough around the edges, I guess. But like I prefer that creature to whatever that physical embodiment of death is at the end of the new one, you know? Like I'm just like more disturbed by then the dead shall live again. And you know, I don't know. I just I, I prefer the Romero version of this story, I guess, to the Zack Snyder version of the story. And I know that's it's not the Zack Snyder version, <laughs> you fucking asshole. <laughs> I said it. I said what I said. Holy shit. What I a, said what I said. That's one of the most insane things you've ever said. I'm ripping my glove off and slapping you across the face through this Jitsi call right now. Oh, what are you going to do about it? That's funny. The fucking <laughs> 2018's spirit might as well have been directed by Zack Snyder. <laughs> I mean... I'm kind of in. Sign me up. Um, <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, so, yeah. So, the next day, she goes to the class. She makes friends with this girl, Sarah, who at first is quite rude to her, calls her a snake at one point. That's a different person. Oh, it is a different person. Sarah's the friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because they said uh, girls whose names start with S are snakes. Susie. Sarah. I once read that names which begin with the letter S are the names of snakes. If you could believe it, this movie's a little bit funnier than that remake. Because uh, I would the, call the new one a hoot and a holler, you know? It, hey, it's a comedy masterpiece, but it's yeah. Suspiria 1977. It's the oh summer boy. of laughs in 2018 <laughs> really? when yeah. Suspiria hits cinemas across the country. This this movie does have one of my favorite, like, what the fuck was that moments where the girls are just sticking their tongues out at each other and then it cuts <laughs> abruptly? I love that little moment. So it's it's delightful in that way. This is a pet peeve of mine, but in any story... I don't like when characters have names that start with the same sound. <laughs> you don't like when names are too close to one another? Yeah, I don't like Sarah and Susie. Unless it's really intentional and you're trying to make foils of each other or something like that, or you're trying to intentionally compare two characters. I don't like when it's like, this is Sarah, this is Susie, this is Steve, this is... Like, just don't do that. I mean, I don't like it. You're playing Nico's greatest hits right now because I had a whole rant about this years ago with Sauron versus Sauron. Sauron and Sauron. Oh, I hate that shit. Don't <laughs> yeah, do yeah. that. <laughs> with Lord of the Rings. 
don't do that. I don't like that. You are speaking my language right now, sir. It's not Duncan, Idaho. That's for sure. No, it's not Duncan, Idaho. Duncan, Idaho is the best. (laughs) By the way, we're talking about old podcasts. This is maybe a bad time to do this, but every time someone in our Discord is listening to an old podcast and pulls a clip, I feel obligated to play it. Because John Blood put an old clip in the in the Discord. For why is this a thing? Yes. Oh, wow. I was listening to the episode covering Food Fight. <laughs> Uh-oh. Which, it just, it just tickles me pink, knowing that people are going back and listening to six-year-old Why Is This a Thing podcast. Jesus. I'd love to hear it. Uh, I'll play the clip. Oh. It's about fertility. What? How are eggs and bunnies similar eggs, to fertility? Egg, you fucking born out of an egg, bunnies fuck a lot. Yes. <laughs> what do you what, what do you need me to explain? That makes sense to me. Bunnies don't fuck a yes, lot. Yes, they yes, do. They do. What? what? You Bunny, never heard that bunnies before? Bunnies thus the phrase like breeding like yeah, rabbits. Yeah, breeding like rabbits. Rabbits have shit tons of kids I've really quick. I've never heard that phrase. What? How, how long does a rabbit pregnant before it has a baby? I think it's like 14 days. Yeah. You've no, never it, heard No, they're not they're not pregnant like the, for Are very they the long. horniest animal? Pretty much. Well, pretty much. Not horniest, but they squirt out babies. There's all, I mean, there's only three animals in, I guess, the, the animal kingdom that have sex for pleasure. I thought it was two. No, it's... T- <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's my fi- favorite part of the clip right there. The <laughs> certainty. <laughs> like, kill me all you want for not knowing that rabbits reproduce <laughs> at quick rates. That's my favorite part of the clip when with such certitude, Zach is like, I thought it was two as though he had the fucking Snapple fun fact in his back pocket and he was reading it verbatim. Uh, well, if you count human beings, well, yeah, that's one. Dolphins it's and two. Bonobo chimpanzees. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I don't don't ask me why I know that. Oh, of course. I forgot the Bonobos. <laughs> no, the fucking chimps. Can't believe I forgot the Bonobo chimpanzees. Of course. Of course. You're, you're exactly right, Adam. <laughs> so uh, there's a little blast from the past for you. And anyone that does this, by the way, uh, we'll, we'll play the clip if, if you want to go through the archives. I also love to think that there's a scientist out there like Noah's fucking Ark. And he's like, I'm going to get every animal and figure out which ones enjoy it. <laughs> oh my god they had sex but she wasn't into it so it was a job it was a job for her i just there are so many i'm not trying to be like some sort of science denier here but there are so many facts in science that i'm like how could you possibly know that right like there's one the other day where they said, um, like, the temperatures this year are the highest they've been for 100,000 years. And I'm like, <laughs> look, I get it. Like, I get what you're saying. And global warming is happening. And it's hot. Sure. But, like, how the fuck do you know how hot it was? <laughs> you don't know. 20,000 BC. <laughs> I don't believe you. And I'm sure they're looking at fucking isotopes and half-lifes. And I, I'm sure. But you're making it up at the end of the day Quick. here. You know, fuck you. I don't believe you. That's crazy. I'm sure you got all your equations and you could spout a lot of words in my direction to explain it to me. But I know and you know that there were no thermometers back then. Right. And you have not seen any of them. All right. There's so many scientific facts that I'm just like, I don't know if that's a fact. I don't know if you can prove that. (laughs) Did you lick your finger and stick it out the window that day in fucking 50,000? BC. 
Give me a fucking break. Uh, what were we talking about? I'm talking about witches. Yeah, so witches. They're doing witch things. Um, <laughs> That's all they're doing in this movie. That's right. Uh, we, we eventually meet Patricia's psychiatrist, who has been taking extensive notes on all of these experiences that Patricia has been through at the academy. And uh, for some reason, the notes went missing. And there's only really one scene with this psychiatrist, right? Earlier in the 19th century, the Marcus woman had been expelled from several European countries. She seemed to have something about her which, which urged religious thinking people to, to persecute her. She also wrote a number of books. And I read that, that among the initiated, she went by the name the Black Queen. After she settled down here, she became the subject of a lot of gossip. Nevertheless, she managed to put her hands on a great deal of money, and she founded the Tam Academy. At first, a sort of school of dance and occult sciences, but that didn't last long, because in 1905, after being hounded and cursed at for ten years, Madame Marcus died in a fire. That's all there is, as far as witchcraft is concerned. But he's just explaining, like, private patient details. Oh, you think he's breaking HIPAA? <laughs> well, I mean, it's Germany, so it's, I don't know what they call it over there. I don't want to give away any details about my client, but he did direct Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been watching, not to, again, derail, but I've been watching a little bit of Jury Duty, finally. Great show. I just love like when he's like, oh, I can't tell you the name of the movie or the director, but uh, (laughs) 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 James Marsden is giving the performance of his career in that show. Oh, my God. It's It's honestly the most I've ever loved James Marsden in anything. He's so good. I agree. Also, I was shocked. I thought that show was going to be shot a lot more like a reality TV show. It's actually shot like a sitcom. Yeah, there are like B plots with just actors doing dialogue that the main subject can't even hear. Yeah, the whole stick stick of that show for those who are listening who don't know what this is. There's one guy who is on a jury with a bunch of other people dealing with a case. Every single person except for that one guy are actors. Everybody is in on it. He knows he's being filmed, but he thinks it's for like a documentary or something. And he thinks all the people on the jury with him are just regular people. Except for James Marsden, who is playing himself, the actor James Marsden, who is part of the jury. Mm. That's the premise. Yeah. And is very proud of his performance on Sonic the Hedgehog. Yes. <laughs> I expected the show to be like, look at how much we can mess with this guy. But it's just straight like a sitcom that happens to feature one actor who doesn't know he's in a show. <laughs> That's a great idea. It is great. <laughs> That's what it is. It got nominated for Best Comedy Series at the Emmys. And it's like, yeah, this is actually a comedy series. Yeah. Cool. I got to check that out. That sounds pretty dope. So, yeah, the psychiatrist comes and goes, and obviously his character is going to be expanded upon quite a bit in that remake, so hold that thought. And then, uh, yeah, eventually Susie stumbles into the coven's lair by finally remembering what it was that Patricia yelled that night. Something about a blue iris. You have to turn it to see the secret. And there's a blue iris on the wall of the headmaster, I guess of the Academy or the, the lead instructor, Madame Blanc mm-hmm. played by Tilda Swinton in the 2018 version turns out in her office. If you go behind a trap door, that's where all the witches hang out and they talk about potentially killing her. She must die. She must die. Talking about Susie. 
given that she's really close to uncovering their secrets, they find this woman, this like old rotting body that has been alive for seemingly thousands of years. Helena Marcos. And Marcos is uh, Mother Suspiriorum, right? That is, uh, that's where the name Suspiria comes from. And she's like the head witch. And she is like laying in bed. And she's referred to as the directress, I think, earlier on. They lied to us. The directress is here. That's her. The one who's snoring. She's the directress. How do you know? I'm sure it's her. She's like too important to actually be anywhere. Mm -hmm. As far as all the students know. Right. Turns out she's a really old witch and she is about to die. Susie kills her. All the witches burn up in flames. And then she leaves and everything's good. And the movie just ends. Another Argento movie that just fucking ends. And that's that. That's right. That's great. Just just be over. You know, I don't need, for example, the main character to visit an old man in his deathbed or and and wrap up a wrap up a B plot. Like, I don't need that, you know, (sighs) just putting that out there. I I was no, I was just making up an example. I'm not. No, right. Just hypothetically speaking. Right. (laughs) That's my favorite scene in that movie, by the way. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Um, But yeah, this one just kind of ends. I I, I do love this little detail. The the closing credit card is not just Suspiria. It's you have been watching Suspiria. Like like you've been watching the Disney Channel. Like. (laughs) I, I know I like it, but it, in a way it does sort of inform my experience. It's not like, like again, like from a s- substantive level, from like a character point of view, a story point of view, even thematically, it's not a movie I'm that engaged with. I just look at it as pure cinema. And when you get the, you have just witnessed this, it's right. like that painterly roller coaster experience. I, I, that you got. My same thought. It's like, I'm at an amusement park. You have just ridden this ride, you know? Yeah. yeah. You've been into a haunt, haunted house and now you're done. And right. right. It's like something that you have experienced. It's washed over you. It happened to you. It's not something that you have been watching, you know? See, I get the, I get the subtitle that isn't there of like, go tell your friends about us. Please leave us five stars. <laughs> like that's, that's what it feels like to me. Tip your waiters. <laughs> right I'm like ew don't tell me what i've been watching <laughs> argento made two more of these witch movies after this one inferno in 1980 and mother of tears in 2007 is that right yeah uh, it completed his three mothers trilogy and so when the 2018 version references the three mothers that is what he's referring to there is a mythology that goes beyond just this one witch Suspiria. Luca Guadagnino. You say it's better than the original. Adam, why do you say that? Is there anything that it doesn't do better? I like everything about it better. Name something. I think it does it better. I I think the vibes are better in the first one. The camera and setting and all that is better. Probably the music. 
as well. Well, the music's very subjective, but I don't agree with the setting. I think the setting is actually much more of an... I think mm, the I new one's kind of drab looking. Deliberately so. I don't like the look. I, I guess, I guess deliberately so. It's very deliberate, yeah. It's intentional, like, and it's hard <sighs> to criticize it yeah. for that. Same with the detached nature, like you mentioned earlier, like... The the very plot of this film demands that you are not in the main character's head. Otherwise, the movie doesn't work. It gives away the twist. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, again, like, I think all of the choices, it's pretty hard to say they weren't deliberate. The Tilda Swinton of it all. I, I just want to get this out of the way. So Tilda Swinton plays three people in this movie. She is credited, I should say, as Tilda Swinton when playing Madame Blanc. She is also playing the psychiatrist, Joseph. Okay, all I knew about the psychiatrist was that's a woman's voice and that doesn't look like a man, but I didn't question it very far. Sure. Right. But that makes sense. It does make and, and I'm guessing also Mother Marcos, the Mother Marcos, big fat blob of a Yes. yes. Job of the Hut <laughs> is also played by Tilda Swinton at the end. Yes. yes. I think that the obvious role that she plays, where she looks like herself, it's very her. I agree. I think that is the best performance. Well, yeah, the warmth that she plays that role with and the kind of empathy that the audience has for her, despite the fact that she's a murderous witch is more effective than, you know, Guy Pierce and Prometheus under the thick layer of makeup. It's it's so much better than that, guys. It's not, not that not much better than that. Like, OK, so here's the thing, right? So that's not that's a bad take. The movie premieres at Venice. And they're like, there's this new actor that's never been in a movie before named Lutz Ebersdorf. And there were all these like leaked photos going around on TMZ or whatever of this old man makeup before the movie was released. And everyone's like, that's fucking Tilda Swinton, an old man makeup. And he's, she's like, no, it's not. What are you talking about? It's Lutz Ebersdorf. And like, they were not fooling anyone. But they just committed to the bit so fucking hard. Like, I think it took a month after the movie actually came out. Because if you look in the credits for the movie, Luntz Ebersdorf is credited at the end of the movie. A month later, she's like, yeah, it was a joke all along. You got me. But it's like, it's not that convincing. Like, I don't know why they thought they could get away with that prank on the public. The only problem to me is really just the voice. But I think the makeup's quite good. Guten Tag. Könnte ich bitte mit Kommissar Glockner oder Kommissar Albrecht sprechen? Name? Klemperer Josef. Einen Moment. It doesn't look like her. No. So like that, but it also doesn't look human. It does not. No, it looks it doesn't like look believable. The bad grandpa from the Jackass movies. Kind of. It does. Yeah. It does. <laughs> the bigger question I have is like, why? <laughs> Nick, like, Nick you know that point? you know that sketch and I think you should leave where he goes to the mall it's like a prank show and he's wearing that very loosely fit old man mask <laughs> yes and yeah. you can clearly tell that it's a person in a mask and he's like what exactly is the premise of this here <laughs> that's kind of how I felt when Tilda Swint was wearing the old man makeup right. I'm like I get what this is but why I guess is more germane is the point to compare the character she plays with this other character she plays, but like there's well, the answer no... is yes. You, you are clearly supposed to be comparing them. Yeah. Other, otherwise, it would have made much sense. I think you're very much supposed to be comparing 
the generational elements and societal elements that are kind of in play with who his character represents in like this sort of post-war Germany era versus the sort of communist spurs that are being thrown around in the dance academy. You know, so it's 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 kind of covering East Berlin and West Berlin and Tilda Swinton's uh, roles are sort of covering those broad societal yeah, but then she implications. She also wears a fat suit. And, and I, I can't help but think you can explore those themes with different actors. It's too obtuse for that to be the reason. It's a little on the nose. You're not wrong, Nick. You're not you're not wrong. I mean, like she's uh, it's Marcos and then she plays Blanc. Right. So there are these yeah. two warring factions Within the dance academy, there's the Blancites and the Marcosites, right? Yeah. And she is playing leaders of both political parties, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that, that's what it is. It's like So the, she is representing two, yeah, opposite ends of the spectrum. And the psychiatrist is kind of like this purity right in the face of all of that. So she is, you know, playing both you know, sides, the East Berlin, West Berlin, the Nazis versus like the radical progressives, you know, whatever metaphor you want to keep on this. And then she's also playing just like the collateral damage in the middle. Right. Yeah. I was going to say very deliberately the side of the story that was persecuted by these two warring factions that kind of came, you know, intertwined with one another. You know, at the end of the movie, Dakota Johnson says to him, like, as a species, we need shame but we don't need your shame, right? And like, you are you are innocent, you are pure, you are above all of this, and we're gonna shroud you from the political back and forth that's happening behind closed doors. So thematically, I get it. I also think like, practically speaking, this is like a very feminist movie and like very literal on the nose ways. And I think casting a man in that part might have cheapened the impact of this like all female cast predominantly. I mean, there are men in this movie, but very few of them have speaking parts. I think like at the beginning when Dakota Johnson first arrives at the Academy, there are two men just like walking shirtless in the hallway behind them. And so you only sort of catch them in the periphery. Men are for the most part, just on the edges of the fringes of this story. You know, it it passes the Bechdel test with flying colors, this movie. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, putting Tilda Swinton in that role maintains that integrity, you know, because I, I think like that's definitely intentional, whatever uh, Guananino was going for there. Yeah. But a- anyway, this is the psychiatrist character whose role has been greatly expanded. He is now a Holocaust survivor living in Germany in the late 70s when the German autumn is happening. Now, I did not know anything about the German autumn of 1977. <laughs> But Wikipedia sure filled me in nicely. 30 years after the Holocaust, 35 years after the Holocaust, there are still Nazis in positions of power in Germany. You know, even though the Nuremberg trials had already happened and although like, you know, America and the allies have eradicated Nazism from the planet, there's still like SS officers in charge of Germany. And there was this one guy named uh, Hans Martin Scheiler. And he was like in charge of some government agency or whatever. And there was this militant group, this like radical liberal Marxist military group called the Red Army Faction. And so they're abbreviated RAF. You can hear those letters recited in the movie Suspiria many times. Uh, They went as far as hijacking a Lufthansa airplane, you know, making demands of the government. They assassinated Hans Martin Scheiler. It was this time of real civil unrest. 
and it was motivated by a bunch of like young Marxists wanting to rid the country once and for all of Nazism. And it was their belief that we need to acknowledge the sins of our past and push forward with like new democratically elected leaders and finally rip the Band-Aid off, right? Finally, you know, address, um, you know, the sins of our forefathers. And that led to a lot of violence. And if you juxtapose that with the arc of Suspiria, the 2018 version, uh, th- this new faction of witches, who we come to find out is led by Dakota Johnson, seeks to rid the old rotting corpses from the Dance Academy, much like these young militant groups wanted to rid the country once and for all of Nazism. But like the new faction are also murderous witches. They are. It doesn't really seem like a great rebirth. No, but they're like nice about it. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like (laughs) we're the same murderous witches, but we're younger and prettier. Yeah. I mean, the people they're they're murdering are monsters yeah yeah you're not wrong literal monsters so you have to get on board there and then you know this raises the question of like what's the point if they're still killing each other and you know luca is a little too angry to do anything less so it's okay that he's at least being him in this movie (laughs) and not letting go of that angry streak that's for sure you can definitely feel some trumpism leaking into this movie like you can definitely this was only two years after the 2016 election you can definitely sense that there's a little bit of resentment towards what obviously a lot of filmmakers perceived as an old way of thinking seeping back into the culture and this idea of like you know bernie sanders and aoc and this new wave of like liberalism coming in and finally like ridding us of the sins of our past right in whatever form that is by Blowing up everybody's heads, which is obviously the only <laughs> correct way to deal with your problems. That's right. Is to take the people you don't like and make their heads explode <laughs> in bloody gore. Right? Sure. Sure. She, come on, Nick. Uh, but I don't know. She's pretty. It's Dakota Johnson. This is part of what I'm talking about when I say the movie is a muddled mess, because, like, I can read the messages, mm. but if I look at them for too long... It becomes like, wait a minute. (laughs) Hold on a second here. (laughs) Like peaceful brutality. Like it's very gentle. We're just going to touch you and then your fucking heads explode. I mean, let's be clear about something. The RAF was not a peaceful organization either. I mean, they were achieving what they viewed as righteous objectives. But yeah, they did not do it in a clean way. You know, they didn't do it through diplomacy or whatever. Was it was it this movie or the first movie where they're like, if Patricia wants to spend her days filling up bottles with petrol, that's her business. Patricia is gone, Olga. We don't know where. If she's gone into hiding, she wouldn't have told us, would she? She would have told someone. We know that she had dealings with people who are interested in targets. And we know there was another bomb in Kreuzberg last night. She wouldn't do that. She wanted to live her beliefs. Who doesn't admire that? And there's so much to change in the world. If she wants to live in a cellar filling bottles with petrol, that's her choice. And who won't be heartbroken if she's shot by police? You you believe everything. <laughs> she's trying to make change in the world. 
right. You, you can support that, can't you? Yeah. That was fucking hilarious, that dialogue. <laughs> Throwing Molotov cocktails through windows. We can all get behind that kind of career. Now, there's obviously contradictions in that. I mean, like, listen, the fucking rebels blew up a whole spaceship and there were a lot of, you know, it's that, it's that whole uh, clerk's monologue. Yeah, there were maintenance workers. They were, yeah. Yeah, exactly. What about all the maintenance workers on the Death Star? I mean, like, you know, war isn't pretty, but there are good guys and bad guys in fiction. And, you know, I, yes, it, the blowing up of heads is violent, certainly. <laughs> a bit much. <laughs> It's a bit extreme, sure. but, you know, witches be witching. Here's kind of where I thought the movie was going, and originally I was behind it, right? Um, in this movie, the dancing was much more important. The dancing is essentially how the witches cast their magic. It is performative magic. Right, yeah. And it is mesmerizing and disturbing to watch. There's the one scene, of course, where the yeah. dancer in another part of the academy gets mangled and contorts in all of these unnatural ways because Dakota Johnson is so violent in her performance in another room. They turn her into a voodoo doll for this other girl, essentially. And God, that was that was Olga's death, I believe. And that was OTT. That was insane. (laughs) That's a great scene. So here's where I was expecting the movie to go to the end, right before the big reveal. Am I spoiling the end here? Yeah, I mean, just get to it. I mean, it's basically the same plot as the original, except there's no mystery. We know that they're witches. We know that they're killing people, except there is this election going on, basically. It's decision 2024 with the witches. One of the the biggest differences is that in the first movie, Susie is trying to escape or trying to not die. Whereas in this movie, Susie seems to be leaning headfirst into this. Uh, and she says, like, eh, you know, I don't really care if they're witches. Like, I'm, I want to be a dancer, you know? Sure. But where, where, <laughs> where I was expecting the movie to go at the end is when Mother Marcos is saying to her, like, I'm going to be in your body and there'll be nothing of you left. And she's like, OK, yeah, she's all in on this. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting her to at the last second show that she is more powerful through her skill at dance and would somehow reverse the spell and kill all the witches. I was not expecting that she's like, actually, secret witch. <laughs> you thought it was going to end like Footloose? Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's a very conventional approach. That, could you, you imagine? You thought she was going to win the day by dancing the other witch to death? That's the only logical way to end the movie. It kind of gets a little unconventional towards the end, I would say. Well, it's a hell of a thing to take the protagonist from the previous movie and turn her into the head witch, essentially. That's what she is. Right. I'm a little unclear on what it means that she's Mother Suspirium. Suspiriorum. Suspiriorum. Sorry, I'm going to make that mistake a lot. But, like, she is this girl from the world, right? She's a Mennonite in Ohio, and she has, like, a very conservative upbringing, very sheltered. And then she goes to Berlin and becomes this dancer. And then at the end, she's like, I am so-and-so. What does that mean? Well, they allude to it pretty frequently throughout the movie that there's something going on with Susie. There's those great flashbacks where she's only fixated on Berlin. That's like a young girl. She's like drawing lines like like where they're supposed to be filling, like coloring in North America. She just draws these lines back to Berlin and that's the only image she cares about. So it's almost like kind of implied she's like the second coming of uh, Mother Suspiriorum. Or she already gave her body to someone 
Yeah. Long before. Right. Is there like reincarnation going on? Like that's sort of what I'm unclear of. Like, is this just a person? Well, I think it's like body snatching more than reincarnation. Yeah. Okay. So is it, yeah. Is it like Mother Sisporium had a similar ritual where she passed her consciousness into this younger body? Has Dakota Johnson been alive for thousands of years and like no one knows it? Like, it kind of felt like lazy writing, maybe. <laughs> I always sort of, it, it always reminded me of Jack in The Shining, I guess. It's a similar kind of like recurring. Hey, that's another movie I don't like. <laughs> yeah. But the, the I think the implication is almost even that like this, this is kind of like even physically what Mother Suspiriorum has always looked like, always been like, and this right. is how she comes into power. And Mother Marcos has kind of lived through all of that, and she said she was anointed as a mother by Mother Suspiriorum. Right. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like maybe physically Dakota Johnson has not always been around, but her spirit yeah. is a thing that has survived, much like Jack and the Shining, right, for yeah, centuries. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, I can get behind that, I guess. No, yeah, I don't think you're really supposed to ask too many questions like that, honestly, about, like, how did she become like this? I think it's almost more like... Somebody who claimed they were uh, chosen by God and then God comes down to smite them and say, you are not, you've not been doing my work kind of thing. But, you know, in the opposite where it's hell and witches and demons. What do you guys think of Dakota Johnson in this movie? I, I like her and it's not my favorite Dakota Johnson performance, but it's a very Fifty Shades Freed. That's your favorite. Well, here's the thing is the one I find it so fascinating. She made this directly after the last Fifty Shades of Grey movie. It is fascinating. Absolutely. She's like, I want to get the fuck away from that and go over to Luca land over here. This sometimes goes well. This sometimes goes poorly for actresses. You know, you have like Elizabeth Berkley in, in Showgirls who is coming from television and takes a radical swing on a, like a hard R NC-17 auteur movie. And it goes pretty poorly. But sometimes, like, you have to take that chance or else you're stuck doing rom-coms for the rest of your life. And, you know, this movie wasn't, like, a smashing success, but it at least signified to other interesting filmmakers over the next five years that I'm game for weird shit like this. You know, I'm taking a similar leap that Tilda Swinton took many years ago. I'm down. You know, use me how you want me. And I think it's, like, paid off really well for her because the last five years of her career... Like, you know, she does The Lost Daughter, uh, Peanut Butter Falcon. I love her, of course, in Cha-Cha Real Smooth. You know, how Oh, I yeah, she's great that in that. Movie. Really great in that. Uh, you know, Bad Times of the Al Royale, which is like a, you know, a decent little genre movie. Sometimes you have to just like disembowel your early 20s career. You know what I mean? Sometimes you need to just blow its head up. It, again, the fact that she wanted to do it at all, like it shows how resentful she was of those Fifty Shades movie, which she does not like, by the way. She's very open about like that was she did three of them. So she I did three, well, contractually. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah it's okay, just like, but like she's like, I fucking yeah, she's not she's not fond of those. So, so I'm sure she very, I'm sure she's wiping her tears away with her money, <laughs> as they always do, Nick. <laughs> they always do. But no, it's like artistically anyway, this is clearly the realm she wanted to be in. Not to say she wants to do movies like this all the time, but weirdly, this is more her space, which is so surprising. She's used very carefully and specifically in this movie to be very much more of an idea than a fully fledged character. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I actually like her a a lot in that she definitely elicits a lot of the 
a spirit that the Mother Suspiriorum character is supposed to have, you know. There's an element of her that's unknowable, and mm-hmm. Guadagnino weaponizes that really well here. Um, that I mean, that's why, like, on paper, an erotic thriller is a good move for her. Like, she would have been really good in Basic Instinct or something like that in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, those movies aren't really made anymore. What was made was Fifty Shades of Grey, and she's not playing the temptress in that. She's not playing the femme fatale. She is playing the protagonist, and she is asked to be just like this every girl, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just not... It's not really who she is now. No, I mean, she has those fucking eyes that when they look at you, like, she can see right through your fucking soul. But she's, she's one of those actresses that she's not, like attractive in the way that margot robbie is attractive she's you know it's a little sweeter a little more no, mes- mesmerizing yeah there's a approachability to her in a way i don't know about you. i would approach margot robbie i don't know about you but. i would run as far as i can in the opposite direction from both of these women for the record i would not know what to do with myself <laughs> <laughs> i would hide in the fucking bathroom stall dude <laughs> Margot Robbie's playing Barbie. She's like a symbol of perfection, right? Yeah. Whereas Dakota Johnson, I find more sexy. For the record, they're both quite sexy, Nico. <laughs> I'm not saying Margot Robbie isn't sexy. I'm not saying <laughs> that. I'm just... I mean... Who, are you Rob now? What is this? <laughs> what was up with, like, the dancing felt like what it must have felt like to fuck? When you were dancing... What did it feel like inside you, inside your body? It felt like what I think it must feel like to fuck. You mean to fuck a man? No, I was thinking of an animal. (laughs) Isn't it supposed to be like a condemnation of the dance? I mean, the, the dance is called Volk, which just means it's translated literally to the people which is its own slew of metaphors and the fact that they're using a dance that's based off of the struggles of the people and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, the first time we get a description, what does this dance feel like to you? And her response is, it feels like fucking an animal. Well, yeah, the dancing in this movie, we should mention a lot of time is not set to music. And if it is set to music, it's not diegetic music. It is, you know, Tom York's score. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a scene where Dakota Johnson just dances silently in a room and it's very, very violent the way that Guadagnino shoots it. And also the sound, like the sound is very overwhelming in this movie. Yeah. There's a line where Tilda Swinton says to Dakota Johnson, we have to kill all beauty. We have to kill all joy from this dance. Like we are making art devoid of beauty. We must murder it in order to like create something truly exceptional. Dude, that is some Werner Herzog shit if I've ever heard it too. See, when this is about, like, a struggling artist, I'm kind of in on the movie's wavelength. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of I settle into it when it's like, you must dance until your feet bleed. Keep jumping. Keep jumping. Like, I like that movie, I guess. What do you want it to be? Whiplash? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I kind of want a dancing whiplash. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but no, but the, the dancing in this, it's very well choreographed and very well shot and very exacting, but it's not beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not beautiful. And, uh, yeah, I mean, every fucking time her feet or her hands hit the ground, it reverberates in your ears, no question. Especially on my new smart TV. Oh, yeah. With my soundbar. Congratulations again, by the way. I told my Alexa device, just play Suspiria, and it's just like, oh, that's an Amazon original. We got you, fam. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And it just popped it right up. 
Do you think Bezos is happy that he paid for that? Do you think Bezos has seen Suspiria? No. Oh, no. God, no. I hope not. I don't think Bezos regrets many decisions he's made. I think he's happy. <laughs> I think he's pretty happy with how things turned out. But isn't he like keeping an eye on things? Like when he's signing the checkbook at the end of the week and it's $20 million and the line item says Suspiria. I mean, he's not even the president of that company anymore. I guess, but like it's his money. I guess. Don't you think like he, he asks one of his secretaries like, hey, what's this whole Suspiria thing? Shouldn't I watch this to see what I'm paying for? It's telling that he hasn't seen it just based on the fact that it's still available on Amazon. <laughs> he ain't he ain't seen this shit, dude. <laughs> this is tarnishing the brand, okay? <laughs> yeah, I just love the idea that like you can buy toilet paper and then click on Suspiria on the same website, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm I'm just done shopping for my toilet paper time to watch Suspiria. They're just it's all the same company. It, it's a great evening doing those two things, really. <laughs> Chloe Grace Moretz. Mm. I'm a fan of hers. Kind of your girl. Yeah, I I don't think she does a, a lot, unfortunately. I'm not sure her career is really taking off. I miss her, to be honest with you. Yeah, right? I always liked her, yeah. She was in Tom and Jerry in 2021. Oh, yeah, that's right. She has been playing Wednesday Adams on the Adams Family animated movie series. She's been doing a lot of voice work, I feel like. She was in a podcast series called Gaslight in 2019. I think I knew about that, actually. Speaking of Amazon, she was on a prime television series called The Peripheral last year, which was like a high concept sci-fi thing that looks pretty fucking generic if i'm gonna be honest with you i miss her i was i i bought a lot of stock in her yeah in 2010 2011 after kick ass and let me in and uh She's so good on that i'm still holding it i still think there's room for her to do something truly great I think she's actually very good. Yeah, she hasn't been given the opportunity, I feel like. She hasn't been given the roles. And when I saw her name attached to this movie, and when I saw her name being one of the top build names attached to this movie, I was very confused by how little of her there is. Yeah, so she plays Patricia. And, you know, her role is actually kind of shrunk compared to the original movie, although her presence kind of lingers. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, she is kept in a basement. She's not actually killed in this version of the movie. And she becomes severely deformed along with all of the other witches' victims. You mentioned it before, but there are these hooks that are probably uh, uh, one of the more notable additions to this version of the film. Mm-hmm. These hooks are used to impale <laughs> the victims and carry them from room to room. Yep. Like, you know, like a fucking uh, meat locker or whatever. Basically. You know? (laughs) And then they're also used to gut the people during the rituals, which is also quite horrifying. So, you know, all of this is going down. Tilda Swinton is playing this psychiatrist, Joseph, who eventually approaches Mia Goth, who in this movie is playing Sarah, Susie's best friend. Mia Goth, I I, I would say, like... uh, one of the preeminent scream queens of this generation. Is that fair to say, Adam? Yep. And this is she's the only kind of shit she does. I have not seen Mia Goth do anything that wasn't really fucking weird. Yeah. 
<laughs> like literally everything she's done is it's not just a horror movie it's a fucking gnarly horror movie or a bizarre ambitious film like high life high life cure for wellness infinity pool infinity pool recently. x and pearl of course which are now like the the roles that she is going to be most remembered by until she does something more iconic i guess mm-hmm. yeah. uh, she did emma in 2020 that's probably the most conventional she gets okay she was an emma but other than that yeah you're right it's just a list of like really surreal horror movies um but she is the one that starts piecing together all of this witch shit at one point there's a scene where like the witches hypnotize a police officer that appears at the academy and they uh take his pants down and they start playing with his junk weird scene yeah, I think they call it his kitty. It's a little kitty, kitty, kitty. They're literally tapping it with the hooks. Yeah. It's like, God, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Yeah, that didn't work for me, that scene. No? Did you feel uh, no. emasculated? I just didn't like anything of how I felt. It wasn't good. <laughs> I felt bad for the guy because he was like so poorly hung. Oh, you felt. <laughs> I was like, they're making fun of his junk. It was cold outside, Nico. There was shrinkage. Yeah. I'm like, that looks normal. That, oh, God. <laughs> like, quit making fun of the guy. You know? <laughs> it's like, hey. Hey. That's not that small. He just <laughs> wants to review movies on his podcast. Leave him alone. Felt bad for the guy. <laughs> um, so, you know, Mia Goth. And Tilda Swinton, as the old man, start collaborating on clues. Eventually, the old man is tricked into believing that his wife is still alive. An apparition of her appears. And turns out that's just the witches playing pranks on him. Mm -hmm. And it's really mean. It's a really mean thing to do to this guy because he's a Holocaust survivor. And his wife died in the Holocaust. And he, like, fled the country. He fled... Poland, right? And yep. and she stayed and, you know, so he feels really bad about that. And so they're being really mean to this guy. And he's just like, I got to stop these witches from witching. The wife, by the way, the apparition played by none other than uh, Jessica Harper. That is correct. From the original film. Works very well. Like if you've seen the original, it's a hell of an effect. And it really reels you in the way that he's being reeled in. I think it's actually a really one of the smartest ideas in the movie, in my opinion. It's very smart. And it's also the symbol of purity, too, like we were talking about yes. before, right? It's yeah. And he, that's the thing. Even if you haven't seen the original, like something about like the look of her, the, the scenes they have together, you're still very much like in a soft blanket when she appears. And uh, it just works very, very well, no matter, you know, whether or not you've seen that original film. I loved it. Uh, Mia Goth eventually they they break her leg they like the witches like open up a hole in the ground of the uh, academy and her leg goes through and then they close the hole and a bone comes out of her leg and it's very disgusting Uh, but again she is kept alive the woman that was twisted into a bunch of knots like a pretzel she is still kept alive there all this impaling happening by hooks uh, but they're all hanging out in the dungeon and it's 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 very gross and uh, eventually it's now time for the ritual, right? Dakota Johnson has been roped in to this whole coven. She's really into the coven. She is uh, fascinated by Tilda Swinton. There's kind of like a psychosexual thing happening between the two of them. She more or less becomes a witch before the final reveal happens, too. She has that. There's those really weird sequences where the they're talking, but their lips aren't moving. They're just speaking with their minds and stuff. 
and it's a very sudden like, oh my God, she's she's gotten to this point now where she can have a conversation. We should also mention too that Tilda Swinton has been sending her dreams to Dakota Johnson mm-hmm. throughout the movie. And that's sort of how this enticement is happening. Yes. Um, she's sending her all this, these horrifying images in the middle of the night of like her mother pressing a, a hot iron down on her hand as punishment for being bad. Yeah. Yeah. This is another kind of maternal thing that's looming over the entire movie. You get glimpses of it at the beginning, but Dakota Johnson's Mennonite mother is dying back at home. And there's that sound of her like snoring, that very loud snoring that just doesn't fucking stop. Like it's really smothering. Um, but, you know, this whole idea of like, you know, what are, you know, mothers pass down to their daughters and, you know, how the maternal instinct manifests itself in different ways. And you have this, you know, very abrasive mother at home and this very welcoming mother in Tilda Swinton. And then there's the scene. Jabba the Hutt appears. Yes. She's like this big creature with like multiple limbs growing out of her. There's like <laughs> half grown arms and legs and everybody is naked by the way, but I don't mean that in a titillizing way. No, it was the least sexy thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. You get some revealing shots that are looking directly up main street too. And it's just, uh, <laughs> amazing. in a movie's actually like showing that, but also like what the fuck movie yeah, everybody gets very naked in that scene. And at the front of it all is this troll thing that is Helena Marcos. Clearly, you guys don't like it. <laughs> um, at the very least, I can say the design is quite unforgettable <laughs> just because of the fucking baby hands that she's got growing out of her. And the moles, the voice, the fucking sunglasses. I'm just like, what the hell is this? Oh, that's right. She's wearing sunglasses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's insane. <laughs> that might be the best touch. The sunglasses are pretty funny. I'll give her that. I, liked I like that she's wearing sunglasses, you know, like she's trying to appear youthful to the electorate. You know what I mean? It's like Clinton playing the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the metaphor here, I guess, is that she's a Nazi. You know, she's the old way in Germany that has, you know, been a parasite for centuries and centuries and centuries passing from body to body, just refuses to die. And she keeps winning the fucking elections. She's like Mitch McConnell or whatever, you know, or Dianne Feinstein, I guess, on the other side, or Nancy Pelosi. It's just, they get the seat once and then they just don't lose the fucking seat. And every year they get worse and worse at their job and they kept winning the seat. And that's what's happening here, you know? What did you think, Nick, of the campaigning styles of Marcos and, and Block here? <laughs> Where basically the witches are just put up against a wall and say, say a name. Mm. And then they go, Marcos. And that's that's the election. Madame Blanc is surging in Wisconsin right now. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> As all of the bellwether counties. I'm ready to call it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking of succession. We're ready to call it. Ready We're gonna call I was going to say, she, she does kind of remind me of Minkin. Just yeah, a Jared bit. Minkin a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit a that. little bit. I mean, Jared Minkin would be the type of guy that wears sunglasses in public that's to act true. cool. Right, yeah. <laughs> fascism with a new spin you know what i mean mm, yeah fascism <laughs> but it's sexy <laughs> right. make it sing a bit you know something pure <laughs> yeah that's right yeah so the ritual happens where they just like disembowel mia goth and Gloria grace moretz and all and all the dancers are just dancing and there's weird singing going on and it's a bit much 
like well nico's not gonna like the movie but mm. is he gonna hate it at this part is this gonna push him over the edge to be like this lucas a fucking hack i think i've just been friends with you for so many years now that i've kind of mellowed out to that worldview and i think like six years ago i would have been like adam like you need to be institutionalized you need to be jailed yeah <laughs> and i just know I, I am now i have enough inner peace in my life to be like you know what this just ain't for me you know what i mean there you go. And it just ain't for me. Nico, let me just be perfectly frank. I don't want you in my club. Right. You're not a right fit, okay, man? You can't deal with a bunch of naked women being disemboweled. I don't want you. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. <laughs> I mean, who knew? Like, there's a bunch of naked women in the club, and I don't even want in. <laughs> somebody somebody isolate that clip right there and just <laughs> oh, send no. it to the FBI. <laughs> um, Nick, what did you think of the ending? <laughs> Can you explain in bloody detail everything that happens in this scene? Yeah, so uh, Dakota walks out and Mother Marcos begins like laughing uh, like a lumbering lard. Just, uh, you, I will eat your body. Ha, solo. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bring me Boba Fett. Uh, I, I was going to say uh, Tilda Swinton's character, but that's not really helpful. Right. But uh, Tilda Swinton, the real, the real Tilda Swinton, please stand up. She is basically pleading with Susie to uh, not go through with this. And she is essentially also telling Mother Marcos, something doesn't feel right. This isn't right. We shouldn't do this. And Mother Marcos goes, you know what? You and I have been fighting for a long time. Throat slit. <laughs> and just kills her. It's not just throat slit, though. No, no, no. I it's, guess they, like, what, pulls out the back of her neck or some shit? It's, it's a near decapitation. <laughs> is yeah, what near, it is. but not yeah. full. But there's a little hanging Chad. There's another electoral yeah. reference for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That was a good one. I'll give you credit Thank for that. You. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, they couldn't even do it as well as Disney World with the full decapitation. I mean, seriously. <laughs> but, That's true. I mean, if you want something done right, you go to the professionals. That's why they got rid of Chapek and Iger back in the driving seat. Do you think Bob Iger has seen Suspiria? <laughs> yeah, I actually do. <laughs> yeah. I think he's seen the original. Yeah, he's definitely seen yeah. the original. Okay. Yep, near decapitation, and uh, this is, uh, I don't know why she waited until after she got killed to reveal. I am actually Mother Suspirium, Mother Septum Ring, whatever. And she begins walking around, well, I don't know, she like touches Mother Marcos and she like implodes like a Titan submarine or something, deflates. Wow, okay. Just like the Titan submarine, exactly the same. I don't know if you could tell, but I'm in a mood. I, apparently. I <laughs> Nick's hungry. He needs, I'm spicy right now. I need a Snickers bar. <laughs> I'm not myself. This is exactly how I like you. <laughs> I want to starve you another hour and keep potting right now. Let's do the other show. And uh, and then, yeah, she just begins walking around the room. And they, I love this horrible, stupid idea of what if we now 
earlier we just played the audio of all the women voting for Marcos, but what if now we show their faces against a gray background where you just see random old women that you've never seen at any other point in this movie because you haven't been paying attention. So they just show this random old woman going, Marcos, and then just head explodes. Head explodes, <laughs> right. I fucking Marcos, head explodes. <laughs> Marcos. It's disorienting enough, but everything is drenched in red at this point. It's the most colorful the movie's gotten. Right. Like, the frame rate is so low. It's like 12 frames a second or something like that. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very jarring and almost funny, but not quite funny. Presumably, the rest of the women who she doesn't head explode, they're the ones who didn't vote for Marcos, right? Is that the implication? I believe so. Yeah, they they either didn't vote or I think there's at least one or two that had like a like reservations to to the idea of voting for Mother Marcos. I know that. There's a couple no labelers, you know? There's yeah. a couple no label yeah. people. And so yeah, so they're allowed to continue to go and and the everything has been settled in the coven. The academy continues. No, the coven. It's the coven of witches. The coven? <laughs> Oh, she like releases like a demon form of herself too. There's like a shadowy figure. Of her. Yeah, it's like death. I think it's just it's like the Grim Reaper or something. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And that's the thing that's making everybody's head explode. But like the whole time, they're still continuing the dance ritual. Right. Mm. And then, as Dakota, she walks around to the ones that are left, and she whispers to them, um, "What would you ask of Mother?" And they say, "I want to die." Then she kisses them on the cheek, and they die with grace. So the rest of them just kind of fall, fetal, die. Yeah, it's all very bloody and very violent. At one point, Dakota Johnson, like, opens up a portal in her chest. Yeah, that's right. She does. She does do that. There's a little bit of a womb thing going on there. Certainly. Mm. Certainly. Mm. It's a beautiful scene, though. (laughs) I hated it more than anything in the world, but... I think there's there's a strange beauty to it. It, it's very moving. Uh, it was revolting. And listen, there is something a bit on the nose about this movie. That and this is my whole thing with Guadagnino, right? Like it's this whole elevated horror era, which I think has often resulted in some pretty good movies. But sometimes it's just like you know schlock that looks like an A twenty four glossy thing. I, that was my whole criticism with Bones and All. It's just like. There's so many lofty ideas and it just ends up being a more boring version of an 80s slasher. And like, I just, I want the schlock, you know? And I, and I, I don't like when these like modern horror movies pretend that they're above the schlock. There's something about a movie kind of looking shitty, but actually punching upward with what it has to say. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus kind of the other way around where it looks like this big budget, high production, beautiful thing. And what it has to say maybe isn't as profound as they thought. Or as succinctly said. It's it's packaged as this kind of Oscar Beatty thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole word, like, it's kind of a, an oxymoron, but elevated horror. It's like, well, does that mean that Dawn of the Dead wasn't elevated? Does that mean that Friday the 13th? Or, That's fair. There's still good stuff in those movies. You know, The Exorcist is elevated horror, even though, like, it's kind of grimy and edgy. Yeah, I, I don't like using the term elevated horror really ever. It's just this director's 
version of this story. It is what it is. Right. I don't know. It's I don't really agree with that, though. I don't know. I feel that way, like bones and all and this are kind of rough around the edges in a good way, in a very personal sort of way, in a sad way sometimes, too. Like they're both very for horror movies to do that, to do what both that and this does this in particular, though, to get as like personal and intimate and tender, weirdly, as this one does. I, I really have never seen anything quite like that out of a horror movie. It's never going to go beyond the criticism of, I didn't feel it. It's just not my vibe. And it's it's not that he's not like a master stylist. Like, I think like the guy is a one of a kind talent behind the camera. But there are some directors and Wes Anderson is definitely one of those for me. And, there, I, you know, I can name a dozen of them off the top of my head. But just like directors that I appreciate their style, but I just don't really vibe with them and you know I and I don't mean that to kind of to skirt around the issue of like why I don't like them I can specifically tell you what exactly about their style doesn't gel with me but like I don't know I understand I understand why you like them I get it and I understand why he has his followers too and I understand why you know like particularly like LGBT people really like his movies because like there's a lot of oh, yeah. gay subtext and obviously bones and all, but also call me by your name is like maybe the gay love story of the decade. Right. So like I understand why certain circles gravitate towards his movies. I totally fucking get it. Um, I just don't get it. You know, I thought you were crazy earlier when you said you, it's your favorite movie of 2018. It is. Well, but I'm cause I'm looking at 2018 and boy, was it a rough year, bad year. Really bad year for movies. It might be the worst year for movies in recent memory. I remember it being, yeah, just terrible. That was definitely what we talked about on that podcast when we were doing the top 10. Yeah. I mean, Into the Spider-Verse has to be the best movie of the year. You got that. You got Stars Born. Um, you got First Reformed that year, which is probably a contender. I think I had Widows as my number one. Yeah, no, that was not a good year. The Favorite was a movie that I quite loved. Very good movie. But I haven't thought about it since. And one of the things I'll say about this one is that I've had this movie in my head almost every day since I've seen it. Let me pull up my top 10 list here from Letterboxd. This is so exciting to everyone listening. (laughs) Just guys reading their lists. My top 10 was uh, from 10 to 1, The Favorite. Ballad of Buster Scruggs at number nine, Mission Impossible Fallout at eight, First Reformed at seven, Mandy at six, Burning at five, Minding the Gap at four, Stars Born at three, A Quiet Place at two, and Widows number one. That's an interesting list. Yeah. Mandy, you're right. Yeah. You got Roma, Thunder Road. God, Thunder Road's great. I guess you got Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah, that's an okay movie. You you got some you got some pretty good stuff, but yeah, it, there's it good was stuff a, every year. But yeah. it was that was not a good year. Yeah. That's not a good year. Uh, yeah. Then there's this epilogue at the end. Dakota Johnson visits Joseph in his bed. He just like went home after everything that happened to him. Like he almost <laughs> that's died. a funny moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long night, <laughs> the hell of a party, <laughs> right? You know, like after everything I've just seen. I can't like go to the police. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. They'll just explode every head in the police precinct. Yep. So I guess I just got to go home and sleep it off. Basically. Which we've all been there. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, and so he goes home and then Dakota Johnson comes over and is like, Hey, I'm sorry for what all my daughters did to you. 
And he's like, gee, thanks. That really makes up for it. <clears throat> and then Dakota Johnson tells him how his wife died in the concentration camp. Your wife had two women with her as she died. Women she had befriended who made her feel that she was not alone. Her final thoughts were of a birthday when you took her to a concert as a surprise, Chopin and Brahms. It was the first time you held her hand. She was cold when she died. She wasn't afraid. She was thinking only of you. And I gotta be honest with you, Adam. You're right. This scene is pretty effective. This scene yes. is pretty good. And it is, you know, one of the first times in the movie where I actually like felt the genuine emotion of it. It's a beautiful scene. And I mean, Tilda Swinton's performance in this scene doesn't say a fucking word. It's just slowly taking it all in and just seeing the little nuances. It's just really, really, really great as, you know, I guess she, but he slowly breaks down a little, little, little more. And yeah, it's one of the more unforgettable scenes of the movie. I, I, I really, really love it. And I think they're both excellent in that moment. Luca Guadagnino screened this movie for his pal, Quentin Tarantino. Oh and boy. At the end of the movie, Quentin Tarantino erupted into tears. Ah, so there you go. This movie made Tarantino cry. Pussy. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird that a a horror movie can be this moving. I, I I get it. I completely understand. Yeah. Tom York, do more scores, please. Incredible score. Do more scores. Yeah. I thought we were going to talk a lot more about this. (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, uh, Johnny Greenwood has just been working with PTA for 15 years. And I think I said this to you over text, but like, I'm surprised that him and Tom York are not in like this arms race of like compiling great movie scores. You know, um, I think earlier we said that like, it can take you out of it in a way. I, I, I think it always kind of works for me, even when it's, there's a little bit of dissonance there. It kind of adds a weird flavor to it. But it's another one of those details where as you watch it and you said, like, what the hell was that score? I'd be like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I get what you mean. It felt weird to me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. It, you're right. It, it's fucking weird. I don't I don't disagree. But yeah. It, yeah, but you love Radiohead, right? Yeah, yeah, I like Radiohead. Yeah, I love Radiohead a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Adam and I's favorite band, and that's something that we've <laughs> bonded over a lot over the years. And, yeah, and, I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. I know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> this is so dismissive. <laughs> I will say this, Adam. I will say this. When you yes. finally watch the bear, which I, I sense is your next binge, it's coming soon. I think. I still need to, I need to finish all of Star Trek. I've told you this. Right. For, and you have to learn Vulcan, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. I have a friend who has been trying to get me to watch Deep Space Nine for forever, and I'm just not going to do it. I, I tried. Apparently, Strange New Worlds is really good, too. Apparently, like, people are really into it. Star Trek is not for me. Every time I try to watch it, I want to kill myself. <laughs> Damn. Because I hate it. 
When you watch The Bear, season one of The Bear ends with a very on-the-nose needle drop, but it is a Radiohead song, and you will be like, this is the greatest thing that's ever been put to film. What's the song? It is the song Let Down from the album OK Computer, which is my favorite Radiohead song, and it fucking rips. Okay. Maybe my favorite use of a Radiohead song in anything. It is so good. Cool. All right. We're done. Yeah, we're done. Jalo July, guys. Final note, uh the 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 Suspiria trailer is phenomenal. If you don't just watch that trailer, it's great. <laughs> That's all I got. I love that trailer so much. And I remember you talking about the trailer, like, ooh, I gotta see Suspiria. I don't think that anyone listening two hours into this podcast <laughs> is gonna have any desire to watch the trailer for the movie that they just heard us talk about. <laughs> just watch the trailer. <laughs> But yeah, if you want a teaser for the movie that we just spoiled the shit out of. (laughs) Watch the trailer. (laughs) That's like putting the trailers at the end of movies in movie theaters. Like not a bad idea, Nico. (laughs) All right. We love you. Nick, anything else? Uh, Bye.